before I forget, those are uh, families that, by the way, thanks guys. Sounds like it's working again. Yeah? Everybody's looking at me like, I don't know, is it? It sounds like it's working? All right, good. Um, hey, uh, those are families that uh, had dedication. I had some certificates here for you, so you can come grab those maybe after the service. I'll leave them lay right here. So I uh, forgot to hand those out to you. Roger Tickborn, you ever heard of him? If you haven't, that's okay. I hadn't until this week. He was born into wealth and given an impressive education, raised in Paris. Uh, his father was the Baron of Tickborn. And so on April 20th of 1854, at age 25, uh, Roger finished up a tour of South America, and he boarded the Bella, a big, uh, big ship, passenger and cargo ship, headed from Rio de Janeiro to Jamaica. But four days later, its wreckage was found off the Brazilian coast devoid of any survivors. Well, Sir James Tickborn, Roger's father, the Baron passed away six years later in June of 1862, which would have entitled Roger to the title of Baron and a great inheritance if he had been alive. Instead, the title passed to his younger brother, Alfred. However, Alfred was a bit of a wild child, and Alfred ended up drinking himself to death a few years later. So Roger's mother, the only one left, Lady Tickborn, uh, decided that she would go speak to a psychic about all of this and find out what really happened to her son. And so she goes to the clairvoyant, and this, this person assured her that her eldest son was actually still alive and doing well. So uh, in addition to the seer's declaration, rumors swirled that survivors of the Bella that he was on had been picked up by a passing ship and dropped off in Melbourne, Australia. Between the rumors of that ship taking him to Australia and the psychic's declaration, uh, Roger's mother, Lady Tickborn, uh, came to believe that her son was still alive and she was determined to find him. So what did she do? She started taking out newspaper advertisements. And you can see one on the screen where they were offering a handsome reward to anyone who could provide any information on the whereabouts of her son, Roger. Well, in 1865, so this is 11 years after the shipwreck, she received a letter from a lawyer in Sydney, Australia. And he wrote on behalf of a man purporting to be her son, Roger, saying that he'd been saved from the shipwreck and he'd been taken to Australia and he'd been working as a butcher there going by the name Tom Castro for the last 10 years. Well, eventually, this man made his way to England to, to meet her face to face and she decided that he was indeed her son. Now, before the shipwreck, Roger was known to be a very thin man. Um, but by this time, when he showed up in England, he was over 260 pounds. And within about two years, he was over 400 pounds. Some people say it's because of his newfound wealth and enjoying his new lifestyle. Others say he was really trying to hide his true identity. Well, during all of this, um, the only person who really believed that this guy was Roger was Lady Tickborn. Everybody else thought he was a fraud, and they just referred to him as the claimant. And this was a big deal in England back in the 1800s. Like, this was like the OJ trial in the news over there. I mean, it was just, it, was, it enraptured everybody, right? It, it, was, it was the deal of the century, because what, would, what happened next is that there was, after she died in 1868, there was a trial, a civil trial brought against Roger, or Roger, the claimant, 
And uh, he wasn't able to prove who he really was. And so that led into a criminal trial where he was accused of perjury. And he was actually found guilty. Um, It turns out that investigators identified him as Arthur Orton, a butcher's son from London, who had moved to Australia and taken up the name Tom Castro to find a better life. But during the trial, this, this image was trying to determine uh, who is the real Roger Tickborn. Is this guy really him? Well, in 1873, again, uh, he went to jail for most of the rest of his life. And he died in 1898 in poverty. You know, it's not uncommon for people to go through life claiming that they're heirs to a great inheritance only to be found out in the end that they're not. In other words, it's not uncommon for people to go through life claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ and claiming that they're going to end with eternity in heaven only to tragically find out in the end that their identity was sorely mistaken. So in the text today, Paul makes it clear that there's really only one way to be considered part of God's family. Only one way to receive the promised blessing that he offers as your personal inheritance. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to see that today. But before we do, let me pray. And then we've got a big passage of scripture that we're just going to take a chunk at a time and try to work our way through this morning. Sound good? You with me? Yeah, yeah. All right. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks uh, that our identity is in him. And for those of us who've trusted you, Jesus, and it's secure. That uh, though the enemy would accuse us and uh, accuse us even before you and try to diminish that identity or get us to believe something else, the truth is that we're yours and we're yours forever. And because of that, we're children of promise, heirs of the promise. Holy Spirit, would you work in and through me today that your word would be clear? Uh, Lord, there's a a lot here that uh, honestly, just at a first reading can be really confusing. So help me to make it it plain. And... uh, Help us to believe it and to trust you. And I pray against the enemy who would lie to us and accuse us. Would you, would you bind him today and instead work in our hearts in a powerful way that we'd be changed? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's just start reading together. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. We're in a series through the book of Galatians called The Sweetness of Freedom. And in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, Paul writes this. He's, he's just finished telling us all about uh, faith or, or justification being by faith alone and our, 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 our walking with Jesus needing to be by faith alone and applying the gospel to every area of our life. And so you get to verse 15 and he says, so to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Paul's setting, up this, setting things up for us this morning with a human example. He's like, I want to give you an example from everyday Life, And he points out that human contracts are binding and they can be really difficult to get out of or to void. Uh, in fact, the word that he uses here is a Greek word uh, that's translated covenant. The word is uh, diatheke. And it, not that you care, but it, what it means oftentimes is it means a legal will. That's the only reason I bring that up is it means a legal will. So think about if you left a will for someone. This is really a good example of of a contract, a human contract that's hard to annul or to break. Um, You know, uh, Lady Tickborn had a will, and and if if Roger was found, he would get a great inheritance. And the thing with, with with a will is 
it, once it's duly and legally made, it's binding no matter what changes or conditions occur. For instance, if a man leaves his poor son, if he has two sons and he leaves his poor son more money than his wealthy son, but the day after he dies, his wealthy son loses everything, his poor son still gets more money. It doesn't change the, you can't annul it or change it after the fact, right? And so Paul uses that example, and what he's going to do is he's going to walk us through about the fact that God's promises in the same way cannot be changed or annulled. They're binding. They can't be changed once they've been ratified by God. So, so that's the first thing just to keep in mind this morning, that, that God's promises, now once they're given, once they're ratified, they cannot be changed. They cannot. And not only they cannot, they will not be changed. So let's keep reading with that point in mind. So he goes on, after giving this example of a will, he says, now, the, now promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Well, first off, what promises is Paul speaking of? We're going to talk about that here in a moment. But, but before I get there, he says, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. So what promise or promises is Paul speaking of? Well, if, if you are familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with a guy named Abraham. Abraham shows up in the Old Testament, and God makes some incredible promises to him that he's going uh, to, to keep in order to, to fulfill a, another promise that he had made to fix everything we messed up. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, let me give you just a brief primer. So in the beginning, God creates everything beautifully and perfectly, right? Without sin, and, and Adam and Eve walk in the garden with him, and then in chapter 3, Adam and Eve both sin. And they eat from the tree that God told them not to eat from. And immediately, uh, uh, shame and guilt and sin enter the world and everything gets messed up. And they were tempted by Satan in the form of a serpent. And so uh, God comes, uh, he walks through the garden, he looks for them, and then he starts uh, addressing what the consequences are going to be for their sin. He told them, if you eat of it, you'll surely die. And now he starts to dish out these consequences. And he starts with the serpent. And one of the things that he does with the serpent is he promises to him uh, that he's going to crawl on his belly. But then at the end, he, he makes a promise uh, in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, God makes this promise. And this is before he ever addresses the sin of Adam and Eve. He says, I will put enmity, strife, conflict between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, you will bruise his heel. Now this promise um, is actually the first time the gospel shows up in the Bible. It's a promise where God is saying, listen, they messed everything up in their sin, but I'm gonna send someone else through the woman eventually, one of her offspring, that is going to crush you. That's why Paul writes in Romans 16, 19, the, the Lord will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The, the Lord will crush him. He's going to win. And, and that's clear by uh, the language used here, right? What's worse, uh, stub your toe, get, get snipped on the heel, or to have your head crushed? Head wound is always worse. Would you agree? I mean, a like, head wound is always worse. And it's saying that her offspring is, uh, is going to crush the offspring of the enemy. Now, that word offspring, it can mean a one, but it can also mean uh, plural. It can be used as a collective singular. We'll see that in a little bit. But uh, here, ultimately, I'll just clue you in that that offspring ultimately is Jesus Christ. 
And the rest of the storyline of the Bible begins, it goes from this promise and it's tracing how God is going to fulfill that promise in restoring all things and restoring his people. Genesis 3.15 is a huge verse in God's word because it's from there that we trace the whole thread of the storyline of the Bible. Well, fast forward a ways and you get to another promise that's made then to this guy, Abraham. Or at this time, he's known as Abram. And at age 75, God speaks personally to Abram. And he gives him a command and a handful of promises. Now remember, what we're reading about here, we're tracing God's promise of how he's gonna fix everything that Adam and Eve messed up. And he gets forward and now he's starting to do it through a family through this man named Abraham. So look at Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is 75 years old, by the way, at this point. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Doesn't tell him where he's going, he just says go. By the way, let me just stop there for a second. It's, it's exciting to have Sue here this morning who obeyed God's command to go. Uh, we heard about Fred and Abby. We can be praying for from our church, God's command of them to go. Did you know uh, we have someone else who's going to be going soon from our church into missions? Uh, do you know Margaret Hirschberger? Margaret, uh, God has been working in her life, and she's planning to go and serve with Campus Crusade, or I should say crew now, right? Um, and she's going to be going, hopefully, at, towards the end of this summer, and we're going to uh, have her up to tell about uh, her ministry and everything that the Lord's doing in her life uh, later this month on uh, Memorial Day weekend. So would that be, is that two weeks from today? Is that right? So two weeks from today, uh, plan to be here. And uh, if, if you get a call from Margot, she wants to come to your 110 group or wants to come to your house and talk to you, say, yes, come over and encourage her. There you go. And we'll send her to Belgium. And, uh, but she's planning to go, uh, I'll, I'll spare all the details, but to Long Beach State University, uh, that's where they have the greatest need, and so that's where she's going to go. And I think God's going to use her in some big ways, but we have the opportunity again to send someone out from our church. Isn't that great? Amen. Yeah, that deserved a big amen. Amen? amen. Yeah. So now the Lord said to Abram, go. He's 75. Uh, and then in verse 2, he says, and, and as you go, I'm going I'm to take you to the land I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, Abraham, Abram still at this point is 75 years old. He has no children. His wife is barren. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse so that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot, who was his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, there's some promises here made to Abram, right? First, there's a promise of, uh, not necessarily in this order, but a promise of a great name. He's going to make his name and his reputation great. I would say God accomplished that. We're still talking about Abraham here thousands of years later in a cornfield in Indiana, right? His name is great. He's the father of the Jewish people. Um, not only a great name, but he's going to turn him into a great nation. He's going to have many descendants. Do you think that was hard for Abram to believe at that point in his life? 75 with a barren wife and no children. Um, and uh, as you go on, he promises to give him a land. He's going to give a land to him that he will show him. Sight unseen, Abram believes. And he also promises that through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You and I are blessed because of God's promise to Abraham. Did you know that? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, she would become Sarah, 
And Lot, his brother's son, his nephew, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, and at that time the Canaanites are in that land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham, or to Abram, excuse me, and he said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Uh, Abraham has given a promise from God that he's going to give to his offspring this land, this blessing. God promises something to Abraham and to his offspring. Now let's skip back to Genesis 3, or Galatians 3.16. The Jews in Paul's day uh, understood themselves and saw themselves rightly as descendants of Abraham. He's their spiritual father. And as our people, the, and as a people, they're descendants of him. They see themselves as offspring by birth and by obedience to the law. Um, well, I just told you earlier in Genesis 3.15 that the offspring there was ultimately Jesus. And Paul's telling us here that the offspring here is ultimately, uh, it's going to be a people but first and foremost, it's Jesus Christ. To your offspring, to Jesus. See, Paul, that's what Paul says in, in verse 16 of Galatians. It, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So uh, file away that for a moment, too. So far, we've said that God's promises can't be changed or annulled. And, and we've also said that offspring here ultimately refers to Jesus. Now, I, I said earlier, offspring can be a collective singular. So it can mean, it's a singular noun, but it can also mean a group of people, offspring, right? Um, it's going to mean that. But Paul tells us, first and foremost, that group of people are coming through the offspring, Jesus Christ. All right? Let's keep reading. Now, thankfully, if you're confused, Paul helps clear it up a little bit here, and it'll get clearer as we go. He goes, this is what I mean. I always appreciate when Paul says that, because sometimes I read it and I go, what's he talking about? Maybe you're thinking that as you're listening. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, so after this promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now, we need to define a couple things. By law, the law, very simply, is simply God's rules and commands given to show his people right from wrong. They were originally given through, uh, by God through Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. And this 430 years that he mentions here is, is really talking about the time that uh, God's people were in Egypt. Now, when we talk about prom versus promise, promise is this. It's God's solemn pledge to perform or grant a specified thing. There's many promises of God in Scripture, and God didn't have to promise anything to sinful people like you and I or Abram. And all of his promises then show that his nature is characterized chiefly by grace and faithfulness. And the ultimate promise of God is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who was promised way back in Genesis 3.15, and when you fast forward to the New Testament, uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. So the ultimate promise of all of these promises is Jesus Christ. So he says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. Now, here's what's probably going on in Galatia at that time. Some people are probably looking at biblical history and they argue, well, so... Uh, 
the promise of God came to Abraham here in time. But then uh, to Moses, there came the law of like all of these things of how God wants us to live. And we realize that as we obey that, we get blessing. But as we choose to disobey that in sin, we're choosing to suffer, right? So uh, I guess that means since, uh, you know, 430 years it's been since the promise to when the law came, I guess that means things change, right? And uh, so now if we're going to get the blessings of that promise, we probably have to obey the law. And Paul says, um, no, the promise isn't based on the law. The promise doesn't serve the law. The law serves the promise. The promise is un unchanging. See, the, the law which came does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now here's, let me try to make this as clear as I can. In the church in Galatia, people had come to faith in Jesus Christ and become Christians, right? And then a group of people, of Jewish Judaizers, they're called, of Jewish people uh, who claimed to be Christians came in and said, that's great. You believed the promise of Jesus Christ, but guess what? There's also the law. And so if you don't obey the law too and basically become Jewish, uh, then the promise to you is void. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The law which came so much after the promise doesn't annul that which was previously ratified. You can't change somebody's will after they die. You can't change the promise just by adding the law later. Does that make sense? So does that beg a question for you like it does me? Why the law? So then why, what's the law for? If it's still based on a promise, because remember in Genesis 15, we find out that Abraham uh, believed God. He believed that promise, and that was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't, his, it wasn't his good works. It wasn't his obedience to the law. He didn't even have that yet. He simply believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, here's what he says in verse 18. For the, the, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes then by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. We're going to get to that question. Paul's going to ask that. Then why then the law? But let me just show you, so you don't take my word for it, but see it in the Bible, where God uh, gives Abraham righteousness just based on his belief. That promise that we saw in Genesis 12 is repeated in Genesis 15. I'm just going to read these first few verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, uh, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir then. Abram's kind of going, God, I'm looking around, and I, you know, I appreciate the promise, but I must mean something that I didn't think it meant. And then God uh, talks to him. He brings him outside. He said, look toward heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, Abram. And look at verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. He didn't believe in him. He believed God's promise. He believed, and he was made righteous. See, that's what being justified by faith means. It means I believe the gospel, I put my trust in it, and then it's counted to me. I'm declared righteous in God's sight. It's not based on my good works. And to prove this point even more in Genesis 15 to Abram, uh, what God does is then he ratifies the covenant. Have you ever seen how a covenant's ratified in the Old Testament? 
Well, it was different, different types of covenants, but in this day, in Abram's day, it was ratified in this way. God tells him in the rest of chapter 15, go grab, uh, he tells him to grab like a a ram and a a heifer and all, all these animals, and I want you to split them down the middle and then wait for me. So Abram goes and gets the, the, he splits them head to tail and flays them out on the ground. And you're like, this is really weird. That's why I don't come to church, right? But let me explain. This was common in that day. The way that you would make a covenant with somebody is you would get these animals, you'd split them down the middle and lay them open. And you would gather all of your friends and witnesses on this side. And the person you're making the covenant with gather all their witnesses and friends on this side. And then uh, you'd say, this is what we're agreeing to today. And uh, since I initiated the covenant, I would walk through between the animals first, essentially saying, if, if I break this commitment with my friend, let what happened to these animals happen to me. We'd keep contracts even more if we did it last way today, wouldn't we? Like, and that, by the way, that, that imagery shows up in a wedding. You've got everybody's friends on this side, everybody other's friends on this side. The groom comes first. He initiates the covenant. Um. And then the next person would go through. Same thing, if, if I break it, let what happened to these animals happen to me. Well, guess what happens in Genesis 15? God makes a covenant with Abram, and the only person to walk the blood path, to walk through the animals, is God. So in other words, it's totally, he's, he's the only signatory on the covenant. It's not dependent on Abraham, because if it had been, it would have failed. Abraham could not rightfully walk through that. Let, if, if I break this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me because it would have happened the next day. But God can say that. I will keep my covenant. It's based on you believing me, Abram. And then he did, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't his good works. That's the, that, that's the gospel, friends. We see it right away in Genesis. And Paul is saying, listen, uh, that's how it was in the beginning with Abraham, whom, whom God promised to bless all nations of the earth, So the law shows up. You can't say that that's a new condition for a promise when God never put that condition on it when he made the promise. So then why the law? Why does God bring the law? Well, that's a good question. Paul asks it. So by the way, receiving the blessing of God's promise is through faith and believing God. Then is your kind of third thing to know about this passage. It's all promises. It's all faith. Why did God give the law then? It's a good question. Paul asks it in verse 19. Why then the law? He says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Another confusing short passage. Let me explain it as quickly and as succinctly as I can. Uh, The the law came for a few reasons, friends. It came, uh, number one, uh, because it says in the text here, was added because of transgressions. Paul tells us in Romans 3.20 that the law reveals our sin. There's different ways to understand this. The best way I think to understand it is simply that the law was given to show us that we're sinful. And if we think that we can somehow attain that blessing by our good works, just live for about an hour. You're never going to do it. The law was given to demonstrate your sin and to demonstrate Jesus' righteousness. The second thing we see is that uh, it served, um, it, it was there until the offspring of Jesus should come. See, it says, uh, until the offspring, Jesus himself, should come to whom the promise had been made. So, in other words, it was, uh, we're going to find out in a little bit, it was a guardian of God's people, but it was also temporary. 
It was temporary. It wasn't meant to be forever, but until Jesus would come, Paul tells us. Now, he says, um, this last piece, it was put in place uh, by an intermediary. Through angels by an intermediary. Now, I believe the law he's talking about was put in place. He's talking about the law, obviously, the covenant with Moses in Exodus 20. Uh, We don't read anything in Exodus about God coming and there being angels with him at that time. But in other places in Scripture, you do see that. So uh, in some way, shape, or form, it was believed and understood in that day that angels accompanied the Lord when he gave the law to Moses. You can read about Deuteronomy 33. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sarah upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. But the intermediary here is, is Moses. God gives his law through Moses. Now let's compare that to the law. The, 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 or the promise, excuse me. The law was given to reveal our sinfulness. The promise promises to grant us righteousness and blessing. The law reveals our sinfulness and our cursedness. The, the law was, uh, we can throw those up here as we go. The, the law then next was to be a guardian of God's people. We'll see that in a minute. The, the promise grants us freedom. The law uh, was temporary. The promise is to be eternal. And the law came through an intermediary through Moses, but the promise Did God speak to someone else to speak to Abraham? No, he spoke directly to Abraham. That's why he says that normally an intermediary implies more than one, the person and the intermediary, but the promise was from God who is one. It's directly from him. He's just showing the superiority of the promise to the law. That's all you need to know. So let's keep reading. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. See, Paul isn't saying that the law is bad. He's saying it's good. He's saying, though, that it doesn't give life. For if a law had been given that could give life, like God's promise, in other words, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, by obedience. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Just like the promise was given to Abraham, who did what? Believed. Friends, your your salvation... Knowing the Lord, uh, to, to be just tried about it, getting to heaven, comes only by faith, by believing Jesus Christ, not by any of your good works and obeying the law. Obeying the commands. Now, is the law important and is it good? Yeah. But does it save you? No, that's all based on promise. Abram laid laid claim by believing God, and so do we. Now, before faith came, verse 23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Paul says we were like, the, the Jewish people, the Israel was like slaves held captive under the law because they could never measure up to God's holiness. And neither can we. We can never do good enough to earn God's favor. It's simply not possible. You're captive by the law. It reveals your wickedness and Jesus' holiness. So then the law was simply our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, declared righteous by faith. Now, um, in the, in the King, King James Version, it uses the term schoolmaster there, like the law teaches us things, but really the right word is guardian, like a, like a nanny. It was the same word was used of nannies and of caretakers of little children. That we're like little children under a guardian until the promise came. 
and we could trust in Jesus by faith. For in Christ Jesus, this is huge, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, you might be reading that and going, okay, it's Mother's Day, we've been talking about honoring women, and now you're going all, uh, you know, all misogynistic here, Josh, talking about everybody being a son. So what, it's not for the women? No, it's totally for the women. See, in that day, guess what? The only people who received an inheritance was the son. But because of Jesus Christ, we're all adopted into the family, and not as sons as daughters, but as sons, so that everyone can receive the inheritance. It's for everybody. It's for everyone. See, that's why he goes on. Uh, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In terms of our standing and receiving the inheritance and knowing the blessing of God and coming to saving faith in him, all of us are equal before the cross. Men, women, children, the elderly, everyone Amen? Now, Paul wraps it up with a really good illustration, and this is where we'll end today. He makes it clear that um, because we're all adopted as sons, we all get the promised inheritance of eternal life and blessing, and then uh, he's gonna show us that we can only be saved then by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It's, it's not to do with our good works, that Jesus is the offspring God promised to bless. So let, let's read about this and. He uses this illustration really of a family and of this adoption thing in, in chapter four. He says, here's what I mean. I mean that the heir, the heir of the promise, in other words, as long as he's a child, is really no different than a slave, though he's the owner of everything. Think about that. He's saying like an heir, if, if you have an inheritance promised to you, but you're just a child, um, you're, you're really no different than a slave. You're still under your parents' authority, you, it may all be yours, but you can't really claim it yet. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In other words, to receive that inheritance. In the same way, also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Remember the promise way back in Genesis 3.15? the woman's offspring, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might all receive adoption as sons. Paul says the only way to claim the promises of Abraham is through the true offspring, Jesus, and being adopted into the family as one of his little brothers or sisters. And it's all by faith. And because then your sons, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, see Paul says that uh, because you are sons, God sent the spirit, crying, Abba, Father. Do you know what Abba means? The closest English translation would be Dada or Daddy. It's an intimate, tender title for God. And that's what Jesus calls him. And it might sound strange, but he was 
displaying how close his relationship was, was the Father. And Paul says, when we're adopted into the family because of Jesus Christ, we have the same tender, loving, intimate relationship with him, and we are heirs of the promise. See, don't be like Roger Tickborn where you just, oh, I go to church, you know, I dress the part, I do enough good things, respond to the ad in the paper, yeah, I'll take the inheritance, great, give it to me. And you try in all your might to live out something that you never are and can never be. Instead, friends, trust Jesus Christ by faith. The promise comes only by faith. It's all by faith, not by works. And the promises of God, they all find their yes in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. Lord, I pray uh, for those of us who have believed, uh, help us to know the truth of your promise this week and the truth of your grace. And I pray for those, Father, who... Um, heard your word this morning, who, who heard my voice, who you've been working in their hearts. If they've never trusted you, today, might, that today Jesus might be the day that they turn in faith to you, that they might uh, choose to believe, and that as they do that, and as they trust you, that uh, you promise, just like you did to Abraham, to credit to them your righteousness, that they would be saved. It has nothing to do with them trying to get it right or any of their good works, but all with your goodness and faithfulness. Lord, we love you. And as we sing, we pray that you would be honored and uh, bless us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.